Hi everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Grumpy Metalheads podcast. I'm the Heavy Metal Strength Coach, and I'm joined as ever by Shrubs666, who is on the coffee this morning. Already. On... Oh, hello. <laughs> um, how are you, Shrubs? I'm good. I'm good. Needing coffee, though. Yeah, more coffee, more coffee. I've got some on the brew um, for after the recording of this episode as well. It's like this series... Uh, may take 400 years. <laughs> we are on to Bal Sagoth and part seven of this little mini series within the other series, which is the history of British black metal. It's early 2006. Disney have just bought Pixar for over $7 billion. <laughs> Rockback Mountain has just won Best Film at the BAFTAs. And Balsagoth are dropping what is thought to be their last ever album, The Catonic Chronicles. Many thousands of years ago, they ruled the globe. It's pronounced by Baron as Catonic, but that isn't how it's spelled. And this is heavily inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. This is five years after their previous album, Atlantis Ascendant, which obviously me and Shrubs absolutely loved. Mm -hmm. It was released on the 10th of March in Europe via Nuclear Blast. The US received The Might of Balsagoth on the 10th of May 2006 via Candlelight Records. For the recording of this album, we've got a key lineup change, and that's Dave McIntosh, who drummed on The Power Cosmic and Atlantis Ascendant, went over to achieve power metal glory with Dragon Force, leaving Harbury's own Dan Storm Mullins. Dan Mullins drummed for Blasphemer, My Dying Bride, and Heathen Deity. With that mix, it looks like Dan would fit into the Balsagoth fold. Like <laughs> but maybe this wasn't the case because Balsagoth parted ways with Dan in 2007. The rest of the lineup for the recording was Byron on vocals, Chris Maudling on guitars, Johnny Maudling on keyboards, and Mark Greenwell on bass. The album was recorded fittingly at Academy Music Studio, as with all the others. Mag's engineers vocals, um, but isn't like the main producer on this one. Um, he was the main producer on all of the other ones. I think Balsagoth take the credit as producers of this one. But they had Mags around to finish the job that he started 11 years previously. The album was mastered by Achim Kohler, a German engineer and owner of Industry Audio. He has also mastered for bands like Aim on a Math, XDO, Primal Fear, Primordial and Sodom. Martin Hanford was commissioned to produce the album artwork and it was recorded between January 2003 and December 2005, which is far longer than it took them to record any of their other albums. According to Byron, and I can't do this spoken word voice that I'll put in a little clip now. But the present fist of great power carried a heavy price. The sixth album took so long because someone decided it would be a great idea if we recorded it on the band's own digital equipment in the band's own digital studio. That was in 2002. Over the years, the slow and onerous process of amassing all the required equipment dragged on and on and on. Deadline deadlines were set and ignored. The clock kept ticking. Several years, numerous fights, and a few catastrophic hardware failures later, we were ready to begin 
to consider the possibility of recording the sixth album. The amount of time this album took to record strained band relations to the limit, and they remain strained to this day. But finally, in November of 2005, it was time to put the finishing touches to the album with a vocal session at the new Academy Music Studio. Partly due to tradition and partly due to the fact that only Mags understands my idiosyncratic and highly specialised vocal approach, I decided to return to the Academy for the vocals. Lyrically, the climactic and most malefic chapter in the entire saga, featuring both long-awaited continuations of old stories and some all-new tales, all set within the conceptual framework of a shunned, blasphemous, and apocryphal occult grimoire. <laughs> this wasn't just the climax of five years of work. In a way, it was the climax of 13 years of work. Well, this is the final episode of the second trilogy and continues the saga of the Obsidian Crown. Let's get into the songs. Shrubs, song number one. Song number one. <laughs> okay. The sixth adulation of his catonic majesty. Basically, this is a four-minute intro, quite literally. <laughs> it's quite dramatic. It's orchestral. There's a spoken word element to it, but... Thankfully, it's quite short, but just generally, it's a four-minute intro, four-minute long. And here are my notes on the four-minute long introduction. <laughs> here, we have the fragmentary transcription of the sixth Latin edition of the Catonic Chronicles, which were believed to have been lost in the 1666 Great Fire of London. We hear of a dark and powerful being which manifested as a different yet incredible sight to all the antediluvian civilizations. Someone is trying to summon this being once again, this being of unfathomable fear. Thon is its true name. The translator helpfully left a huge list of ancient evil law you should avoid, one of which is the Catonic Chronicles. He speaks of an evil permeating all existence without the constraints of time. He speaks of a quasi-sentient manner that many of these timeless evil beings are linked with, who use it as an evil sustenance for their dark bidding. Just leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet. Beings such as the sorcerer pseudo-human Lord Angsar and the failed experiment of the Ersatz one Zura, who stars in the Power Cosmic. We love that one as well. Zura <laughs> was a clone of Xeranthus gone wrong beneath the Precambrian Sea due to the contamination by a friend of the Zulth. Uh, I don't understand what I just said either. The manor ruins their minds, and that ultimately spells destruction and their ultimate defeat. Now, instantly, you can hear how much better the production is on this album. Would you agree with that, Shrubs? Or at least yeah. different because of the digital yeah, nature of it. it. it is different. In places, it sounds... Everything sounds really crisp. But then there are moments... Where I th and I think this comes down to the fact that like Mags did the vocals. There are moments where those vocals are like there's a I can't remember which track it was exactly now, but there's a like a whispered spoken element to it. And unless I put my headphones on, basically I could just hear this raspy like breath that going noise, on. Yeah, and it, yeah, it, yeah. And, and I couldn't I couldn't clearly hear. But I have a problem with all the spoken word on this album anyway. But yeah, I, I think 
production wise, it's as good as the one before, if not slightly better. And I do think everything sounds a little bit crisper and a little bit sharper. So maybe it is that digital recording that they've done on it. But that's where I'm at with it. Song number two. Number two. Uh, Invocations Beyond the Outer World Night. Look now to the interior world. This is probably this is where it properly kicks in it's got definite this is where you get that full-on symphonic black metal kicking in i think the vocals are really really good on this remind me of early cradle of filth the vocals on it more that style of barking sound but there, and there are elements of spoken word in this, but in this song, I don't, they don't feel too intrusive and overpowering. It, it kind of fits, but like I say, with a lot of their stuff, I, I do feel that they overuse spoken word far too much yeah. to to push the narrative along. And I think it, it's such a convoluted story anyway. And I think just adding these spoken words just seem to make it even feel even more complex. The winds. Talk of rulers of the earth, lost and enshadowed by the passage of time. An explorer talks of acquiring an ancient map, perhaps made by the same cartographer who created the Perry Reese map. By the way, the Perry Reese map is a world map compiled in 1513 by the Ottoman admiral and cartographer Perry Reese. Approximately one third of the map survives. It shows the western coasts of Europe and North Africa and the coast of Brazil with reasonable accuracy. Various Atlantic islands, including the Azores and the Canary Islands, are depicted, as is the mythical island of Antillia and possibly Japan. So maybe they've acquired an original Piri in a game of cards at the Portsmouth docks. Thanks to this map, discoveries greater than Caleb Blackthorns could be on the horizon. Caleb provided most of the story for the previous album, Atlantis Ascendant. The drunk mariner betting the map Seems to be troubled by memories. Maybe he was with Blackthorn when he ran into trouble. The discoveries were two portals at the poles of the earth, one at the North Pole and one buried amongst the lost civilizations of Antarctica. The explorer is making his way to the northern portal, seeking the blackest secrets of the universe, voyaging on the Tatsumaki Maru. And by the way, uh, this might be a reference to the... Tatsuta Maru, which was a Japanese vessel built in 1927 to 29. Before World War II, it would sail from Japan to California. In 1943, it was sunk by U.S. torpedoes, killing 1,223 soldiers and passengers and 198 crewmen. That is a fun fact for a Sunday morning. And it's Saturday morning as well. Oh, yes. Under the Aurora Borealis. She sails through the ice. The portal will take them into the hollow earth. Fuck's sake. Mm. What the lyrics describe as the portal to the tenebrous cryptic core of this world's subterranean inner sanctums. These inner sanctums are full of things descended from the beings who transcend space and time like Xeranthus and a host of other weird and wonderful names. A great conflict will be raged between order and chaos, between Angsar and his nemesis, who was merged with the human king via magical soul sword. These beings from the inner sanctums will suffer immensely at these beings' hands. These beings guard the dark truth 
of our extraterrestrial origins. There is a terraforming and a pseudo-sun in this hollow earth kingdom. Man's origin story is laid bare here. Surely it will now be revealed to humanity. So I, 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 I there's, there's, there's too many stories going on. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I was lost about three albums ago. Yeah. Uh, Song number three. Song number three. Six score and ten oblations to a malefic avatar. Too much spoken word. I have come into possession of a certain ancient book. When the black metal actually kicks in in this song, it's really, really good. But yeah, it's just filled, literally filled with spoken word, and it, it it's annoying because I can't I can't follow it. I'm trying to listen to the music. If you want to do a spoken word album, do a spoken word album, and then people can follow that. I'm trying to get the balance of spoken word and black metal is not going to work, and and it comes to the forefront on this this song for me. And this song talks of fragments found in an alcove of a fictional museum and accompanied by a key of unknown origin, found in 1941 during World War II bombings in London. A certain book is mentioned in the first fragment. This book is based off far older transcripts, such as the one lost in the Great Fire of London, mentioned in the previous song. This book is the Catonic Chronicles. It can't be disclosed how they're acquired. It's an incomplete Latin translation of an old transcription punctuated by passages marked as being Old High Atlantean. It's a grimoire tour and about Chthon, a diabolical avatar of Zulf. The author must delve deeper into the black evil text full of summoning spells with lore from time immemorial derived from ancient tongues. And apparently... The Chronicle is bloody terrifying and is another document to shatter man's origin story. It's all wrong. There is no monomyths, no collection of allegorical folk tales. It's all true. It is all fact. Song number four. Song number four. Uh, the Obsidian Crown Unbound. I liked this one. We march to war. The siege begins. Yeah, I, I've got nice choppy style riffs going on, a uh, great bit of black metal in there, um, but again, just ruined by too much spoken word. Just focus on on doing the music and proper vocals with it. Uh, but we've had this complaint for like four a albums. A year. <laughs> yeah, a year it's taken us to get through these last four <laughs> albums or whatever it is. Yeah, it, I think it, it just too much spoken word and it kind of takes away my enjoyment of the music a little bit too much because I just want to, I want to listen to it. I want to listen to the music. I want to listen to his raspy because he's got some great vocals. He's got great death metal vocals. He's got great black metal vocals. Just allow them to do that talking and not his actual talking. Strap yourselves in. Here's another song containing chapters worth of narrative. There are 10 chapters to the story behind this song. From chapter nine, the legions of the Imperium are storming the cloud-clapped fortress of Golkothoth. 
which is from a previous album. There's a siege happening, a new day dawns, preparation for warfare are being made. Siege engines position themselves outside this mythical city of Kulkothoth, and the Emperor places a banner as a statement of intent. He will try to take the city by extreme force. The Imperial Frontier Army is ready for battle, and they are as yet undefeated in battle. And they have war leopards! <laughs> Beyond the Frontier Army are the Legion of the Ebon Tiger, Pride of the Emperor, and personal regiment of the feared General Balthus Vane. All 6,000 of them are in jet black armour. Emperor Cord himself on horseback examines the gate he is to attack. At the Emperor's right hand was the renowned swordmaster of Karamanuku, an eastern bladesman of great skill. He's the most revered mercenary in the Imperium. At his left, the infamous Ogre Mage of the Black Lake, who strikes fear into everyone nearby. They alone had knowledge of the mysterious arcane rite known as the Words which unfetter. The defenders of Kulkothoth look on from behind their walls at the attackers and await the onslaught. They shudder in anticipation. Balthus Vane and Emperor Cord have a sweet-ass convo. Cord talks of invading at sunrise for one last glorious victory. People in power have been bribed and everything is ready for the takeover. The Emperor can therefore be at the front without worry even against the wishes of his advisors. Vane is like, we'll smash them easy as fuck. Cord <laughs> warns against complacency. Vane thinks it's time for the military to ru rule overall. While Cord worries about rumours that the Virigothians of Golkothoth have a magical weapon, which is part of the Trinity of Might. It's the Obsidian Crown itself. And there's another two artifacts, um, that the Shadow Sword and the Ebon Scepter. <laughs> and we know the King of Atlantis had the Shadow Sword. Vane thinks that this is bullshit and there is no power trio. All victories point to their ultimate victory over the of the over-king of the Virigothians. Ford has made a plan for if they do possess the Obsidian Crown. And the call is given to march to war. The Virigothian wizards talk in the distance. They have the power trio together at last. Then we proceed to chapter 12. The fall of Kulthothoth. Thousands die. Lots of war. There's a bringer of war. Uh, and the emperor's mightiest battering ram finally brings down the gate as dusk descended onto the battlefield. The Imperium forces start to surge into the fortress. Then the army bearing the obsidian crown, bursts onto the scene. And in chapter 13, wizards... Oh, my cat has just gone onto the keyboard. Hey. And then in chapter 13, the wizards do battle. The walls are breached and the obsidian crown has to protect it. And the black crown are here to save the day. And the notes carry on and carry on. And the iron phalanx of the Emperor turned to face the newcomers. Arrows fly and foes fall on either side as the most powerful wizards on either side do battle while summoning the most, most ancient power they can. Eventually, the Emperor's mage falls in the epic confrontation and the obsidian crown is finally used to defeat those who breached the walls of Kul Kothoth. 
Now the forces of the Imperium see their impossible task. The Obsidian Crown and no Archmage and Steel, which has no chance against the Wizards of Kulthothoth. The Archwizard is carving through the Imperium forces with ease. The Imperium's forces begin to fall apart. But one regiment didn't. The Legion of the Ebon Tiger will go down trying to take as many people with them as they can. Now the Emperor Corps brings out the two main weapons in his plan, the Ogre Mage and the Swordmaster. They utter long-forgotten words to bring something, or some power forth not seen since the death of the Shadow King himself. Everyone around senses something has changed, something malevolent, something massive, and something powerful has undoubtedly arrived. To me, the epic story is not matched by the song. It's messy and it's overcomplicated and some of the guitarists are annoying, but there is some really nice black metal on there. Yeah. But I think I've said enough. Song number five, Shrubs. The Fallen Kingdoms of the Abyssal Plain. Literally, I've just gone, what is this, an interlude? And I think it's just keyboards all the way through for like four minutes, four and a half minutes. And I don't know, I don't know what it's what it's giving to the album at all. Yeah, so, I think it's just to provide more story and more notes. Really? And it's basically a, a creation myth from a tribe that's giving more evidence towards ancient civilizations and ancient wars. Again, it's it's just owing to the overcomplicated nature of the story. I don't, in fact. This the notes to this don't really add anything to the story either. It's just pointless. Um, yeah, just... and and it's same musically. If you because I'm, I'm I'm trying to block out the story as such because it's so complicated and, and I I I was lost about three four albums ago anyway. Um, with who's involved in in what, but I, to me it just doesn't. I don't feel it adds anything to the album anyway. So. That that's why I just put my what is this and is it an interlude? And what is this indeed? Song number six. Okay. Shackled to the Trilithon of Cthulhu. The Hydra knoweth thy lair. Dagon shall break thy accursed bonds, and thy kingdom shall rise once more. Again, this this is getting back into the black metal now, so this is this is much better. Um, uh, I can't remember how much spoken words on this one. I think by now I'm I'm already drowned in spoken words, so I'm probably not even picking it up anymore. <laughs> but I did love the like for the overall feel for the whole album. Realistically, I think they they went much further back to their roots in terms of the black metal style that they've done, which is good for those elements. And just too much spoken word, but yeah, this one I think had a nice, full-on black metal blast for me. I enjoyed this song. This song is basically um, Lovecraft masturbation. Okay. <laughs> Someone wants to invoke the Lord of Dreams to know his divine will, to have power over his minions, and he unlocks the secrets of the deep. A ritual must be enacted under a horned moon to bring the kingdom of chaos back to life. Dagon, spawn of chaos and elder knight, will spring loose again. The death of death is the aim so that he can rise, so he can escape the tower he is trapped in <laughs> while dead but dreaming. The summoner wants a sign he has returned to Earth. He wants the power. He wants Cthulhu to rise 
again. And that's pretty much it on this one. Song number seven. Number seven, Hammer of the Emperor. After the day comes the night. My time. This is the longest track on the album. I think it's just around the seven minutes mark. And this is where it, it, this song feels more like modern day power metal rather than black metal. There's still elements of black metal in it, which I think is in a lot of power metal anyway, because they have lots of blast beats and lots of double kick drums as well. But for me, this definitely feels a little bit more like that kind of epic power and expansive power metal feel to it, and especially dragging it out to seven minutes. But again, probably too much spoken word. And I'm not really sure what the spoken word is talking about here. <laughs> someone is sat inside someone's mind and someone is going to be punished horrifically. Maybe the emperor. Someone's time has come. Empire will be one with war. And someone sees a nest of vipers every time they look at someone. Something about Orphidian scales. A serpent's tongue scores the flesh. The witch is summoned. And I understood none of it. Okay. Song number eight. Sounds good. Unfettering the hoary sentinels of Karnak. I haven't written any notes for this, so I obviously I think I, I was getting a bit tired of writing pretty much the same thing. Good black metal bits, some nice riffs, too much spoken word probably because there's too much spoken word throughout the whole album. Like I say, Byron stick to doing those vocals that you're really, really good at. And I think you, you would have had an absolutely cracking album. It's, yeah, it's just the same all the time. Like the, If they'd have got rid of all the spoken words, it'd have been so much better. Yeah, um, and I, it works. But for me, it was just, it was detracting me far too much. From there's too much going on. Yeah. Like with this one, we're back in the fictional Grimshold Sanitarium with Dr. Ignatius Stone. And Stone plans on telling Cable Blackthorn um, and warn him about all the stuff that's going on. And then they're in Giza. And there's an entrance blocked to some collapsed ceiling. And he could explore further. And there's a great cosmic puzzle. And Stone has studied the alignment of stars with other Egyptian monuments. And his next stop is the temple at Karnak, where his work will carry on. He wonders what grim deities were worshipped here, what power... Would someone look in in the shadows and cover? And Stone is more a maverick than Blackthorn. And then he mocks him for being like afraid of risk. There's hidden doors, there's hidden chambers, and far too much to cover here. And there's guarded antediluvian law. And they were tasked to destroy the unworthy of the knowledge. And Stone sees the sentinels rising. These watchers were there when Thebes and Giza were built. Some shouting about gods is now in Thebes. And it's it's just it's all over the place, and it's about lost civilizations and lost knowledge that is still being uncovered to this day. Song number nine, shrubs. Song number nine to storm the Cyclopean gates of Byzantium. <laughs> this was just an orchestral cinematic five minutes. Again, it's another one of those kind of interlude moments. It's a very nice piece, but. Again, I don't know. I don't know truly what it's adding to the album. I mean, it might be adding to the stories because it feels like we've got multiple stories going on that are just well too confusing. But uh, as a person who's kind of been lost on the story for a long time and trying to enjoy the music, 
this is this is a nice piece, but just like what's it doing? What what's it adding to the rest of the album musically? I don't know. It's just very. It's a very nice piece of music. It's 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 about it's a Roman story. Emperor Publius Helvius Pertinax has fallen victim to the assassin's blade. He was the first emperor to die in the year of the five emperors, which was a real thing. Now Septimius Severus consolidates control of the empire. He would defy Pertinax during his reign. And as we stand, Severus is in the process of destroying other claimants to the throne. The legions now must prepare to siege Byzantium. Um, and then there's stuff about uh, the Byzantium library. And then um, I'm guessing they'll find some ancient scrolls. Yep, absolutely. And then it talks about like Lord Angsar again. It's bringing ancient Rome into it now, just showing that there's evidence everywhere throughout the ages about essentially Atlantis and um, civilizations under Antarctica as well, with these like like half mythical demigods um, in existence as well for some reason. Song number 10, Shrubs. Song number 10, Arcana Antediluvia. I haven't written any notes, so it's probably good black metal like the rest of the album when with the actual musical part, but probably too much spoken word. So, <laughs> A man travels to the sea, reaping vengeance wherever he goes. His gaze as his fire, his words are as spear points, his voice is as thunder, his touch as the plague. It sounds as if this as if this man can travel beneath the waves. Or maybe he or maybe he drowns, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Pitiless sea devours and the surf runs red, according to the oracle. Men may dream of being kings, but they should not aspire to have the power of gods. Again, another really frustrating song for me. There's like some really blistering symphonic black metal parts of it, and then there's just too much spoken words, but my God, Byron's vocals are fantastic. Song number 11, Shrubs. Song number 11, Beneath the Crimson Vaults of Sidonia. It is Sidonia, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Again, just like you just said about the last song, I think there's some Great symphonic black metal moments, but again, just uh, it's just a pattern that we see now with them that, that we just think it just gets oversaturated with these spoken word bits, and it just to me it just detracts from the actual songs themselves. I think if I could switch off, have an option to just take out the spoken word bits and leave everything else in, I think it would be you know this would be an absolutely cracking album to listen to. With the stories just bringing in everything now. So Sidonia is the famous location featuring the face on Mars. So like he's just, he seems like he's Googled conspiracies and taken all the stories from that and just put them into this one single album. And there was already so many stories to finish off. And in this, there's a horrific pit, there's ancient beings, there's pyramids on Mars, there's more civilizations, there's more portals, there's a primordial abyss, a god awakens, there's a black galaxy that will be crushed and Byron's vocals will shine and there'll be far too much spoken word. And the guitar tone is better than I think it's ever been on this album as well. Okay, Scrubs, yeah. the final 
The final song. <laughs> Return to Hathag Kla. I think, I hope I've said that right. You have. Uh, right, cool. This is obviously the album closer. This is their last song. And to be honest, when I was listening to it, it's mostly just ambient noises closing with some choral element, you know, some choristers just singing along or just doing what choristers do. It's very nice. It's, it, it's an outro and yeah, yeah that, that's it. I mean, I don't, I don't remember there being any spoken word, but I fell asleep listening to this album last night. So I probably didn't get to that song. <laughs> <laughs> Now, the very first Balsagoth song is called Hathag Kla. So this brings it full circle. And it ends with a big conversation. And that finishes with, I saw oblivion and damnation. I saw truth and enlightenment. I saw the closure of the great circle without end. I saw the sixth great cataclysm. I saw the alpha and the omega. I saw the beginning and I saw the end, the end of all there is. We began in 1995 with an instrumental and we finish with an instrumental in 2006, which brings us to the end of the Balsagoth chapter of British black metal. Over their epic six album journey, they toured with the likes of Dark Funeral, Emperor, Vader, Amon Amarth, and God Dethroned. And they played their last gig to date in 2010. The Maudlings have formed a new band called that I know you love, Shrubs. Yeah, yeah, I like that, yeah. In 2015, stories by Byron from the Balsagoth universe were unleashed upon the world. Byron has continued to release Balsagoth-related stories throughout 2019 and 2021. Their science fiction, power metal, black metal... Albion worshipping madness will never be replicated again. I've loved and hated my time with Balsagoth because there's been bits of absolute majesty and there's been just utterly baffling elements of spoken word that I haven't been able to remotely understand, even reading the source material. And the subjects they covered were far more diverse than any band I've ever encountered. And their their ambitions were huge and... Whether they fulfilled them or not, I think is up for debate. I think they did in some ways, but in other ways, it was a catastrophic disappointment. I think these could have been so much more. Yeah, It's never really bad, but it, it's never really genuinely incredible for very long. I think the standout thing for me throughout was Byron's metal vocals. I, I, I think they were incredible from start to finish, and they definitely did expand where black metal could go even if the replication wasn't the best. What do you think, Shrubs? I, I completely agree with you on that. I think you can hear them musically growing uh, as the albums progressed. You could see, you could hear how raw it was and how young they were when when they first started. You can definitely hear how they influenced so many others in that symphonic black metal realm as well. And yeah, Byron's vocals, uh, and we I think we've said it, especially on the last few albums where his vocals, when he actually gets down to doing the two or three different styles of vocals that he does, like the the sharp barking black metal vocals, the death metal vocals, he's really, really, really good at them. But like you, I think they made all the stories too convoluted, too complex. People just genuinely, I don't know how anyone can actually follow it apart from Byron. And I think they just ruined 
so many good songs by having far too much spoken word. Like I say I think spoken word can work in places, but it has to be yeah. short. Has to be short. It can't be like long prose is going on and on, and you're like. I just want to listen to the music now. I just want to hear the music and I can't enjoy the music. because I've just got this spoken word going on. Um, if you gave me the vocals, it'd probably feel completely different because the vocals tend to be like that additional instrument in a song and the spoken word isn't. It's either you want to listen and hear the spoken word and try and understand the spoken word, or you want to listen to the music. Yeah. And, and it's, for me, it's very difficult to combine the two together and for it to work, you know, and, and that's and I think that's the downfall for these. A lot of these albums, they could have been so much better just dropping the spoken words. Yeah, you could have dropped like 20 minutes from some of these albums, yeah. but their legacy will live on. Yeah, they are still getting towards 6000 listens a month on Spotify and the Balsagoth universe may continue to grow. But now it's time for us to move on. We've spent over a year with Balsagoth through the sublime and all the spoken word. So with that, we close the book on Atlantis and the gods of Balsagoth forever. The end.